as the children and their workers are making their way to their classrooms, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Philemon. We start a short series through a very short book of the Bible this morning, Paul's letter to Philemon. It's at the end of all of Paul's letters, tucked in right before the book of Hebrews. Philemon is the shortest of all of Paul's letters. The longest is Romans. We covered that a few years ago. That was some 430 verses. Philemon is 25 verses. And so uh, it's going to take us about three weeks to get through this. As a preview of where we're going through this summer, I'm excited about what we're going to be tackling over the next couple of months. Uh, We are going to this summer, uh, take a dive into one of the minor prophets, the book of Haggai, um, and we're going to spend several weeks this summer going through the book of Psalms. We're not going to go through Psalms sequentially, but we're going to be looking at a collection of Psalms, various kinds of Psalms, Psalms of Thanksgiving, Psalms of Lament, Psalms uh, of that are Messianic Psalms that prophesy about Jesus. And so I'm very excited about the next couple of months, and what we'll be learning together from God's Word. But for the next three weeks, we want to focus on this very short but deeply relational and very personal letter from the Apostle Paul to this fellow named Philemon. Now, let me uh, set the background a little bit so that we can understand why Paul wrote this letter and why we have it. Philemon was a believer in the church at Colossae. In fact, the church at Colossae, I believe, met in his home, as we'll learn. Um, And so he lived there, and that was where the church met. Uh, But Philemon was also a slave owner. He owned at least one, probably more than one, slave in that day. And one of his slaves was named Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away. He ran away from Philemon, and we don't know exactly what the circumstances were of him running away and how he ran away or how he met up with the Apostle Paul, but he did. Whether he was intentionally trying to reach Paul because he knew that there was a connection between Paul and Philemon in hopes that Paul would negotiate a a, a truce between them, or whether it was just God's providence that led Onesimus to Paul. We just simply don't know. But he found his way to Paul. And Paul, of course, at this time is in custody in Rome. He's under house arrest, chained to a guard in Rome. And he's, he's with Onesimus. Onesimus is, is with the Apostle Paul there in Rome while he's under house arrest. And while he's with him, he gets the gospel, because when you hang out with Paul, that's what you get. You get the gospel, whether you want it or not. And so he gets the gospel. By God's grace, he responds to the gospel. He places his faith in Jesus Christ. Onesimus becomes a believer. And now Paul is writing this letter to try to repair the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Now, the fact that Onesimus was a former slave, and Philemon was a former slave owner, this has been a burr in the saddle for many who wonder, 
why didn't Paul in this letter come out with an unambiguous and very straightforward and clear statement that he renounces slavery? Why doesn't he do that? As we'll read this whole book in just a moment, that's something that we won't find. An unambiguous, straightforward renunciation of slavery. And so I want us at the outset to tackle why he doesn't. Because if we don't, we're likely to miss the point of this letter. And so I want to give you five considerations here about slavery and the Bible in, in, in general, but slavery in the book of Philemon, Paul's letter to Philemon in particular. And the first consideration is that slavery is not the point of this letter. It's not the purpose of it. It is simply the context in which this letter is written. And so we, it stands the reason that we wouldn't find here an excursus on the morality of the slave trade. It is not the point of the letter, and neither, by the way, is it the point of the Bible to address and solve all of the social problems of its day or ours. It's not the point of this letter. Secondly, slavery in the first century bore little to no resemblance to the kind of slavery that we're accustomed to know about in 18th and 19th century in colonial America. Very little resemblance between the two. Slavery in the first century was primarily about economics. Many slaves sold themselves into slavery in order to repay a debt or to provide for their families. They would sell themselves into indentured servitude in order to pay for a debt that they had incurred somehow. This is often what slavery was all about. It was to repay a debt or provide for their families. But as we know, that's not what slavery in America was about. Slavery here over the first couple of centuries, two or three centuries, was very different. It was based not on economics. It was based on ethnicity. It was based on the color of one's skin. It was based on a, a power struggle. And it was wrong, and it was sinful, and it, it, there is no excuse for it, and certainly no biblical justification for it whatsoever. It was fundamentally fueled by a racist mindset. The former kind of slavery in the first century was, in fact, allowed by the Old Testament and, in fact, regulated by the Bible so that it was kind and fair and reasonable and didn't include the kind of treatment that was harsh and dehumanizing as was known and typical in the latter kind of slavery. So with respect to the, the latter kind of slavery that we know about here in America, I think we can show that the Bible specifically speaks against such forms of slavery. First of all, it violates the fundamental command to love our neighbor as ourselves. And to treat one another as people made in the image of God. That kind of slavery clearly violates that. Second of all, the Old Testament in the book of Genesis clearly and explicitly outlaws what's known as man-stealing. That was completely outlawed. And the penalty for man-stealing in the Old Testament was death. So it took it very seriously. But thirdly, slave trading 
that is the business of abducting people and selling them as possessions, is listed by the Apostle Paul himself, who also wrote this letter to Philemon. When he writes to 1 Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, Paul lists slave trading along with, and in the same category with, those who kill their mother and father, murderers, adulterers, perverts, liars, and perjurers. So slave trading is included in that list. And so please don't let anybody try to convince you that the Bible condones or is somehow silent about the kind of slavery that we that stained the first couple of centuries of our country because it does not condone it and it is not silent about it either. The third consideration is that elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul gives very clear and I would say very countercultural to his day instructions for how slaves ought to be treated and tells masters that they ought to be treated with dignity and with respect as unto the Lord. Again, this was not Paul condoning slavery, but simply demonstrating how Christian slaves and Christian slave owners can operate together and live out the gospel in the situations in which they found themselves in the first century. The fourth consideration is that while we don't see a very clear renunciation of slavery in this letter from Paul to Philemon, Paul does clearly argue for Onesimus's emancipation. He tells Philemon, I want you to take him back not as a slave, not as a bondservant, but as a brother in Christ. And so I believe he's arguing for um, the emancipation of Onesimus, which I think gives us a pretty good indication as to where his mind was with respect to the institution of slavery. And then fifth and finally, and this gets us a little bit closer to the purpose of the letter. While Paul doesn't articulate an unambiguous renunciation of slavery here in his ink, in the black and white of what he writes in this letter, the underpinnings of the doctrine that is here is incompatible with the institution of slavery. It's incompatible with it. John, uh, excuse me, uh, the 20th century, early 20th century English pastor and theologian Jeffrey Wilson says this, if this letter, <clears throat> if this letter presented no revolutionary challenge to the social structures of the day, the implications of its teaching were bound to prove fatal to slavery in the end. So here we're saying there. While the letter presented, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Thank you, Polly. <clears throat> While the letter presented no revolutionary challenge to the social structures of the day, there's no clear and unambiguous renunciation of slavery. The teachings, the implications of the teaching in this letter were bound to prove fatal to slavery in the end. The doctrinal underpinnings of this letter are incompatible with slavery. And this is what I hope to demonstrate as we make our way through this letter. The purpose and the theme of this letter is Paul's hope that Philemon and Onesimus would be reconciled 
on the basis of their shared faith, their common faith in Jesus Christ. And consequently, our primary takeaway from this letter, from this book of the Bible, is to seek and pursue reconciliation with one another and the body of Christ because of our fellowship in the faith, our common belonging to one another because of our shared faith in the gospel that unites us. So let's read Philemon, the whole letter, this morning. And we're going to focus this morning on the first seven verses. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake... I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the Lord, in the flesh, and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I, I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, your, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow, servant, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for this word, and we ask, Father, that you would do what only you can do, that through your very breath, your word, preserved through, for us on these pages in front of us, that you might reveal yourself to us, show us who you are, show us who we are, show us how sinful 
rebellious man can be reconciled to you. And then, Lord, change us. Make us into the men and women that you're calling us to be through your very word as we attend to it with faith. So we trust, Father, that you will speak to us this morning and that you will give application to our lives that ultimately brings you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as is is common in all of Paul's letters, he starts with a greeting in the first three verses. Then he moves to a prayer of thanksgiving. And then in verses 6 and 7, he moves on to the point. The point not only of his prayer, but what I hope to show you is in verses 6 and 7, the very point of the letter itself. So he starts off introducing himself as the author of this letter. It's from Paul. He, he also says it's from Timothy, my brother, our brother. Uh, that does not mean that Timothy wrote this letter with Paul. Uh, Timothy is simply Paul's companion while he's under house arrest there. So Paul is the one who wrote this. And as you can tell as we read through this, it's a very personal, very deeply relational letter. In fact, it's the only one of Paul's letters outside of his pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, that is written to a single individual. All the others are written written to churches and groups of churches. This one was written to his friend, his beloved brother in Christ, Philemon. Paul typically gives himself a title when he starts his letters. He usually says, I, Paul, a servant of Christ, or I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And this is the only time in any of his letters that he refers to himself as a prisoner in the greeting of the letter. Now, why does he use a title of himself at all? I, Paul, a servant. I, Paul, an apostle or whatever. Why does he use a a title or or a word like that to refer to himself? Well, typically when he does that, he uses that to reinforce his point for writing the letter in the first place. So typically when Paul has something hard to say, when he has something that he's going to confront, he introduces himself as an apostle. But when he wants to identify with his readers, his audience, or when he wants to compel them to mission, he refers to himself as a servant. But here he refers to himself as a prisoner for Jesus Christ. So as we read, what Paul is doing in this letter, he's appealing to to, to Philemon, I want you to do a a hard thing. I want you to, to make a sacrifice. I want you to take Onesimus back. Not as a slave, but as a brother. And it's like Paul is saying, listen, I've made my sacrifice because to follow Jesus sometimes means making sacrifices. And Paul is saying, listen, I've made my sacrifice. I'm a prisoner for Christ's sake. Philemon, are you willing to make the sacrifice that you need to make in your walk with Christ? So he's a prisoner. We know that this is one of the prison epistles along with Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. These were written by the Apostle Paul while he was in Rome in prison. He was under house arrest, as Dr. Luke records uh, 
he was in Acts chapter 28. But though he was in the custody of the Roman Empire, Paul says that he is a prisoner for Jesus Christ. He is so very glad and almost proud of that title. He's glad to be a prisoner for Jesus Christ. He is not, he's not happy about his imprisonment in Rome in some kind of sadistic way, but he is glad that he is a prisoner for the sake of Jesus Christ. He's glad about that. John Calvin writes in his commentary, the chains by which he was bound on the account of the gospel were the ornaments and badges of that embassy which he exercised for Christ. Embassy referring to Paul's understanding that he was an ambassador for Christ. That's what we are, right? Where he has us in our embassy. And so in his life stage and, and, and where he was in life, that was his embassy, and Calvin says that the, the, the chains that bound him on account of the gospel were the, the ornaments and the badges of his place in that embassy for the sake of Christ. He was glad to be a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And so this is Paul. He is the author. So next we're told who it's written to. We know it's written to this guy named Philemon, but Paul refers to Philemon here as a beloved fellow worker. And so that tells us at least a couple of things about Philemon. Number one, Paul loves him. He is a beloved brother to Paul. We don't know how, exactly how they met and how Philemon came to know the Lord. I would imagine it's probably when Paul spent a long time in Ephesus and and Philemon went to Ephesus on one of his many trade duties and, and encountered Paul and like Onesimus got the gospel and came to faith in Christ. But however it was, they knew each other and Paul loved him. He was a beloved brother to him. And Paul is going to unabashedly appeal on the basis of that belovedness that Philemon would take Onesimus back. So we know that Paul loves him. Secondly, we know that he's a, he's a fellow worker. In the Greek, it, this is the, the Greek word synergos, which is uh, the Greek word scene, which is beside, and ergos, where we get the word ergonomic, which means to work. And so it means to work alongside. That's how he saw Philemon. He was a, he was a fellow worker. He worked alongside Paul in gospel ministry. He was apparently an affluent man. He owned a house there in Colossae that was at least large enough to accommodate this church. And he was invested and he worked hard in the gospel ministry there in his city. Paul also addresses here uh, Apphia, our sister. And so this, this woman was a, a believer in Christ. She was a sister in the Lord. Most Bible scholars take this to be Philemon's wife, Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, whom Bible scholars say is probably their son. And Paul refers to Archippus as our fellow soldier, which I kind of just get the picture of, of Paul just encouraging this young man in the Lord. He is a fellow soldier for Christ. Not that he is a, a soldier in the army of the day, but he is a soldier in Christ's army. It reminds us of the song that we sang when we were young people. 
I may not be in uh, march in the infantry. I may not shoot the artillery, but I'm in the Lord's army. And Paul here encourages this, this young man, this young boy perhaps, and says, uh, this is to Archippus, a fellow soldier for Christ. At the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, which is to the left in your Bible, at the end of that, which probably accompanied this letter when Tychicus took them both from Paul uh, to the church in Colossae. Probably took both of these letters. But at the end of Colossians, Paul tells them to say something to Archippus. In Colossians 4.17, Paul says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And we don't know what that ministry was, but we get the picture here of a, a, of a young man in Archippus who is perhaps preparing himself for gospel ministry. And Paul is intent on encouraging him, both in this letter and in the broader letter to the Colossian church in general. Speaking of that church in Colossae, Paul also addresses them. He says, to the church that is in your home. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. We know that Philemon lived in Colossae, so is this church that's in his home, is that, in fact, the sum total of the church in Colossae to whom the book of Colossians was written? Or was this uh, one of many house churches in Colossae that together made up the church of Colossae? We don't know for sure. But I tend to agree with scholars that say that this was the church in Colossae. It was called a church, not a part of a church. It was a church there in his home. And I take this to be the church in Colossae. So that means that Philemon's home had to have been a large home. Scholars say that it was probably large enough to house about 100 people as they gathered for worship. And Paul sends them all his greeting. And to all of them, he says in verse 3, grace, and, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this, as we know, is a very common salutation that's a part of many letters of the day and is in some form or another in every single one of Paul's letters, whether to individuals or to churches. But just because it's common... Just because it's familiar doesn't mean that it is devoid of meaning. This ultimately at its core is a prayer wish. It is Paul's desire that his audience here would know and experience grace and peace. But more than that, this is a recognition that this kind of grace and peace that he talks about is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want grace, which is what we get that we don't deserve, which is reconciliation, a sinner reconciled to a holy God, if we want that grace, and if we want peace, which is a cessation of hostility, where, where God's wrath against our sin is somehow satisfied and dealt with, if we want that grace and that peace, those are not things that come to us by way of us building things or earning things or achieving things on our own, as if we could uh, earn those things on our own. Nor can we go to any government or any therapist or any pastor or priest or anyone to get these things. These things 
are ours only if they come to us from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we know the grace of God this morning, if you know the grace of God, and if you have peace with God, then praise God and thank God because he gave that to you. That came from him. And if you don't have the grace of God this morning, and if you don't have peace with God, then your only hope to have those things is to ask God for them by faith. To ask that he would give you this grace, grace to save you through faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death and resurrection. And to ask God that by that same grace that God's wrath against your sin might be satisfied through Jesus' death in your place at Calvary, thereby granting you not just present peace, but eternal and everlasting peace with God. This is Paul's uh, prayer wish for his readers here in the salutation. So now Paul moves from the greeting to his prayer in verses 4 and 5. And like the greeting, the prayer of thanksgiving that we find in the letter to Philemon is very familiar, very similar to the prayers of thanksgiving that we find in most of his other letters. Look at verse 4. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. What a delightful thing to say about someone. When I, when I think about you, when I... When I pray for you, Philemon, I'm just prompted to say, thank you, God. Thank you for Philemon. Wouldn't that encourage you? If someone said to you, you came to my mind this week, and as I was praying for you, I, I was just led to thank the Lord for you. That would certainly encourage me. What a beautiful sentiment and an encouragement this must have been for Philemon. I wonder if there's someone in the church for whom when you think about them and you're led to pray for them, you're prompted just to say, Lord, thank you for them. Thank you for who they are. Thank you for what they mean to me. Thank you for this person. It's a beautiful sentiment, encouragement for Philemon. And by the way, I don't think Paul is buttering him up here. He's just expressing genuine, the genuine affection that he has for Philemon and gratitude that he has to God for Philemon in this letter. And I can't help but wonder what an encouragement it would be for us in this very room if we were to follow Paul's example in this. And express to our brothers and sisters in this family that when we think of them and pray for them, we're just prompted to say, thank you, Lord, for them. Thank you. I think that would bring such an encouragement to us, that encouragement in our souls would just be such that the walls would not contain it. And this place would brim over with agape, love, and affection for one another. And after all, wasn't it Jesus who said, they out there will know us by our love for one another. And so let me encourage you to consider doing that. Express that.
to one another, that you are thankful them for them, and how when you pray for them, all you can say is, Lord, thank you for them. Thank you for them. But what is it in particular about Philemon that prompts Paul to say thank you to the Lord for him? Verse 5, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And so Paul hears about Philemon, how he's doing. It probably came by way of Epaphras. Epaphras was the, the dude who was the church planter there in Colossians, Colossae. He planted that church. He started that church that's meeting in Philemon's home. And he had taken a report back to Paul while Paul was in prison about how the church in Colossae was doing. And Paul's response to that report is the letter to the Colossians. But apparently Epaphras also brought report of how certain people were doing um, in the church in Colossae. And when Paul heard about how Philemon was doing, what does he hear about? He hears of his love and he hears about the faith that he has towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And for this, Paul is exceedingly thankful for Philemon's faith and love. But at the mention of Philemon's faith and love, Paul now draws out the implications of that. The implications of Philemon's faith and the implications of Philemon's love for the saints. And in doing so, he gives us now the point, not only of the prayer, but as I said earlier, the very point of the letter itself. And it's found in verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, all Bible scholars agree that this is the verse in Philemon with which they disagree the most. This is a very difficult verse to interpret. Going back to Jeffrey Wilson and his commentary, he says this, the meaning of almost every word in this difficult verse is disputable. <laughs> so, you ready for a challenge? I'm ready for a challenge. Let's dive into verse 6. I want us to, to pick it apart and then put it back together so that we understand what Paul is getting at here. And I think we'll see that this is the point of the whole letter. He says, and I pray. And so this is a continuation of Paul's prayer. That he's praying for Philemon. But now he's moving from praying for what he's thankful for about Philemon. To now praying for Philemon. And asking God for something on Philemon's behalf. So what does he ask for on Philemon's behalf. I pray that the sharing of your faith, now let's stop there. We really need to dissect these words so that we understand what that phrase means, the sharing of your faith. Because on the surface, it sounds like he's talking about evangelism, right? Philemon, I'm so thankful for you. Because the, the sharing of your faith that is, your, your, your efforts at evangelism, your efforts at declaring the gospel to the lost there in Colossae would become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, that's a nice thing to pray, but I don't think that Paul here is referring to Philemon's evangelism 
and his evangelistic efforts. The word sharing there in the Greek is the common Greek word that we know as koinonia, typically referred to as the fellowship, the, the, the community, the mutually belonging to one another that we have in the body of Christ. That's a theme in many of Paul's letters, especially his letters to the churches. He talks about the koinonia of the community of believers. Listen to how some other faithful English translations translate verse 6. The New American Standard says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith becomes effective. The NIV says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective. The Christian Standard Bible says, I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective. And of course, the ESV that I typically read from in here, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Fellowship, partnership, mutual participation, sharing in together. Those are pretty good descriptors of the word koinonia. It is, in a sense, a mutually belonging to one another, in participation and partnership in one another, that we are not independent of one another, that we are dependent beings, first on God and secondly on one another. But it goes beyond being dependent. It goes beyond the sense of just needing one another. It goes to a sense, a very real sense, that we are mutually part of one another. In the body of Christ. And what is it that makes us mutually belong to one another? Well, it is the faith. It is the faith. So this takes us back to verse 5. I want us to look back at verse 5 now in light of what we're beginning to see in verse 6. He says in verse 5, Paul says, I thank God for you, Philemon, because... I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. A couple of things I want us to note about verse 5 now in light of verse 6. First, don't miss the definite article there in front of the word faith. Paul doesn't say, I hear that you have faith in the Lord Jesus. That's not what he says. He says, I hear of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever the word for faith is preceded by the definite article, it's referring not simply to our, our personal faith of trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. When it's referred to as the faith, it's referring to the faith, the, the, the Christian faith, the sum total of the teaching of the church that is in accord with the Bible, orthodox teaching, and is summarized in the gospel. Jude calls it the, the faith for, for once the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what Paul is talking about here. And so it is the faith that is the, the gospel message that unites us in the body of Christ. It is the faith, our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that makes us part of one another. 
that, that gives us a participation in one another, a partnership in one another, a literally a sharing in one. We have a share in one another because of the faith that we share in Christ. Those of us who affirm this faith, we belong to one another. Those of us who hold to this faith, we are part of one another. That's what Paul is getting at. The second thing that I want us to note from verse 5 now is that Paul says, I thank God for you, Philemon, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, if we look on the surface of the grammar there, it looks like he's saying three distinct things. First of all, I hear of your love, and we're not given any direct object as to what he loves. What is it or who is it that Philemon loves? But he hears of Philemon's love. He also hears of Philemon's faith, the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus. And he hears uh, about the faith that he has toward all the saints. So what is the object of Philemon's love? Well, if we parse out the grammar of the Greek here, the objects, both of the objects that we find at the end of that sentence are the objects for both Philemon's faith and Philemon's love. And so we can say, Philemon loves the Lord Jesus, and Philemon loves all the saints. And Philemon, Philemon has the faith, uh, the, the faith of Philemon is both toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now what does that mean? Certainly it does not mean that Paul is saying that Philemon is, is putting his faith in the saints to save him not saying that at all instead I think what we see in verse 5 is the same thing we see mirrored in verse 6 Paul prays Philemon I hear about your love for Jesus and your love for the saints and I, and, I, and I hear about the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and I hear about the faith that you have along with and in shared participation with all the saints that are there with you they have a common faith a partnership in this faith and it's, it's the sharing of this faith, sharing in the participation of this faith that Paul thanks God for in verse 5, and then he builds on now in verse 6. He says, Philemon, the, the, the share that you have in the common faith, the mutual belonging to one another that you have with the other saints there in the body of Christ, I pray on the basis of that, what's next? I pray that this sharing, this participation, this belonging that you have with one another because of your common faith may become effective. That's the Greek word energes, which means energized or effective, to become active, to become operative. Operative to do what? For the full knowledge that is not just the awareness of, not, the just, not just the mental assent to, but the full application of, the full knowledge of what? Every good thing. Everything that is good and useful and pleasant and honorable. Every good thing that is in us, and it's only in us because Christ is in us by faith, for the sake of Christ, that is for his glory. And so now we can begin to piece together what verse 6 is getting at. Paul is appealing to Philemon on the basis of this shared faith, on the basis of the, the, the common participation and belonging that they have with one another in that church because of the gospel that unites them. 
He appeals to them on the basis of that. He prays that this common partnership, this mutually belonging to one another might become so operative and so effectual and it might mature to such a point that it causes you and others in the church there in Colossae to do and be good things. That your life might look radically different because of this common faith. That you're mutually belonging to one another and participation in one another would, would cause you to do things that the world around you will look at you and say, Philemon, why in the world would you ever even think about doing this? And the only reason would be, well, there's a mutual partnership that you have with these people, a participation, a belonging that you have with these people because of your common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that's unlike anything that those around them in the first century had ever known or experienced. In church, an example of the kind of good thing that Paul hopes that Philemon's partnership in the gospel would cause to be effectual and operative is taking back Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. This one who had abandoned him, and scholars say, like we learn elsewhere, Paul says, what, whatever he took from you, whatever he owes you, whatever is wrong to your account, I'll, I'll repay. Scholars believe that, that he probably took some possessions with him. But even if he didn't, he stole himself away. And so now Paul will, in the next chapter, ask Philemon to accept him back as a brother. And the foundation, here's the point, the foundation and the ground of Paul's appeal for him to do that is verse 6. You see, Paul, to Paul it's not just that we, that we have a faith that we agree on, that we believe the same things. It's not just about that. It's that because we affirm this common faith, we're part of one another. We belong to one another. And when we belong to one another, we can't not reconcile with one another. No matter how great the offense is that's between us. This is the foundation for the hard ask that Paul will make of Philemon in the passage that we'll look at next week. But for now, we should walk away from this morning's passage with a similar recognition that we belong to one another because of our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this faith has made us part of one another. We have a fellowship with one another, and that doesn't mean that we just like to eat fried chicken together. It means we have a, we have a participation in one another. We, we have a partnership in one another that's unlike anything that any kind of partnership that the world knows of and this this partnership this koinonia will require great things of us things that the world won't understand it means not only will we 
gather together in our homes once a week for base group. But much more than that, it means that we belong to one another. It means that we have a share in one another, that we're part of one another. And so we, we lean on one another. We encourage one another. We grieve with one another. We rejoice with one another. We, we rebuke and challenge one another when needed. And we confess our sins to one another. And when we are at odds with one another, we are compelled to reconcile because we're a part of one another, because our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that unites us. Refusal to reconcile with one another is like denying a part of ourself, because it is. Refusing to reconcile, in fact, denies the very faith that unites us. Paul closes this opening of his letter in verse 7 with an expression of confidence on his part that he sees these things in Philemon. He sees his faith. He sees his love. It's there. Verse 7 says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So again, Paul is appealing to the fact that he, he sees this kind of faith in him. He sees this kind of love in Philemon. It's been demonstrated by his heart towards the saints in his church. He says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. And, and I don't think that Paul is talking about Philemon's love for him. He's talking about Philemon's love for the saints. Philemon's love for the fellow brothers and sisters in the church of Colossae, his fellow saints in that church. He loves them. Because then he gives the reason for why Philemon's love has given Paul such joy and comfort. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. It's the kind of person that Philemon was. Philemon was the kind of guy, the kind of person that when you were down, when you were depressed, when you, the world had you beaten down, and you spent time with Philemon, you were refreshed in the Lord. Do you know people like that? You spend time with them, and the circumstances of life have you at your end in whatever way. And you spend time with that person, and they don't give you law, they give you grace. And you walk away from them refreshed in the Lord. That was Philemon. That was a part of his redeemed nature. And it brought such joy and comfort to Paul to see that Philemon's agape love refreshed the saints in his church. Such was Philemon's heart. and So this too was part of the basis for the ask that Paul will make of Philemon in next week's passage to take Onesimus back. Philemon, I see your heart and I see your love and it gives me such joy and comfort, Philemon, when I see that through you the saints in your church are refreshed. Brother, on the basis of that heart, on the basis of that love, I appeal to you, take Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. 
So what are the foundations of reconciliation, at least according to Paul, with respect to Philemon? Well, first of all, if we're going to reconcile with those who've wronged us, those with whom there is a distance between us for whatever reason, if we're going to reconcile, one of the things that's going to compel us to do the hard work of reconciliation is to recognize that we have a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that because of that, we belong to one another. We're part of one another. How silly would it be for us to not lean into reconciliation? To not lean in, we were turning our back on ourself. To reject the opportunity for reconciliation is to deny not only ourself, but the very faith that unites us to that person. But secondly, if we're going to reconcile with someone, we need to love them. It is an expression of love to do the hard work of reconciliation. And a reticence to reconcile really reveals a heart problem. And so Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, brother, you've got plenty of both of these things. The faith that unites us and a genuine heart that loves the saints. And so on the basis of that, I'm asking you, brother, to take Onesimus back and reconcile. So friends, this morning in the church here, we share a common faith that gives us a participation in one another. We belong to one another. We are part of one another. We literally have a share in one another. And we are responsible for one another. And so, on the basis of that faith and our love for one another, may we seek and keep after and and be known as what Paul said in Ephesians, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this window into this relationship between Paul and Philemon as he appeals to him to do a hard thing, to reconcile and perhaps take a sacrifice himself in this, in taking back Onesimus. And as we are confronted with Paul's appeal, Lord, we recognize that we share that same common faith with one another in the body of Christ. And so, Father, may that faith that unites us, not similar life stage, not similar socioeconomic status, not a geographic, geographical closeness, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that faith and the love that you have given to us that we now have for one another be the thing that keeps us leaning into one another to keep short accounts, to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. Father, we pray for those who are among us that don't know the grace and peace that Paul prayed for his readers. 
But they are outside the family of God this morning. I pray, Father, that you would make readily clear to them, readily apparent to them of their precarious predicament apart from you. And Lord, as they contemplate the hopelessness of their condition because of their own sin and rebellion against you in the very next breath, I pray, Father, that they would see that grace and peace can be theirs from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would give them the faith to trust in Jesus as their only hope, to stop hoping in their ability to be a good person and achieve some level of right in hopes that you would count them righteous, but they would place all their faith, all their hope, all their trust on Christ crucified and risen, and that you would welcome them into the family to be worshipers of Jesus. Father, as those redeemed seeking to be in a spirit of reconciliation with one another, we now close our time together by worshiping you, because none of this would be possible apart from you. And as we consider Paul's exhortation, as we consider Philemon's predicament, we also think about Onesimus, that we were that slave, enslaved to sin and death, and desperate for someone to make an appeal and be a mediator for us. And so we are thankful, Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us. May we live and now worship in light of that good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.